0: Virtually all chemotherapy agents used today have the potential to cause a hypersensitivity reaction, reactions that can range from mild to moderate or even life-threatening. Taxanes, platinum-based drugs and monoclonal antibodies are among the most common offenders and each have different approaches as it relates to hypersensitivity prevention and treatment. Today, Dr. Kaylee Clark reviews common hallmarks of drug specific reactions and walks us through an evidence based approach for prevention and management.
1: Chemotherapy is the third leading cause of fatal drug induced anaphylaxis in the United States. As an oncology resident, I was really interested in learning about the common culprits that cause these reactions and sharing with you all today how we can prevent and treat such, such reactions. Today we will review the types of hypersensitivity reactions. We will discuss the pathophysiology and common features of different hypersensitivity reactions to distinct chemotherapy agents. And then lastly, we will describe appropriate management strategies for hypersensitivity reactions. Let's start by laying the groundwork with some definitions. An adverse drug reaction is any undesired effect of a medication. These can be categorized into type A and type B reactions, where type A reactions are more common, accounting for about 85 to 90% of all reactions. These can also be remembered as A for augmented, because they are predictable in nature. They are dose dependent and related to the pharmacological effects of the medication. In contrast, type B are more uncommon, accounting for 10 to 15% of all adverse drug reactions. They can be remembered as type B, as bizarre because they're unpredictable in nature, they're dose independent. And a common example of this would be if you gave a certain dose of an aminoglycoside, let's say it's pretty large, and the patient develops nephrotoxicity. That would be a type A reaction because it's predictable. We're monitoring for decreased kidney function with an aminoglycoside. But if you gave that same drug to a patient and they developed welts, they turned purple, and they couldn't breathe, That would be a type B reaction because it's unpredictable. We couldn't have known that that would happen to our patient. Hypersensitivity reactions fall under type B and they can be further classified as allergic or non-allergic. Today we will be focusing on type B reactions. Hypersensitivity reactions are further classified according to the effector mechanism that produces the reaction. And most commonly, the Gel & Coombs system is used for this classification as illustrated on my slide. Type 1 is our immediate type of hypersensitivity reactions and these are IgE mediated in nature. They most severely will present as anaphylaxis, whereas Type 2, 3, and 4 are delayed reactions. So these can occur hours to days after being exposed to an offending agent. Type 2 are mediated through IgG and IgM and are often called cytotoxic. They can present as hemolytic anemia. Type 3 are thought to be immune complex mediated when antibody and antigen complexes form, and these can present as serum sickness. And then lastly is type 4. These are T cell mediated and often present as a skin rash. My example here is contact dermatitis, but it could be as serious as Steven Johnson syndrome. Type one and type four are the most commonly seen drug reactions, Um, however, we should treat all of these, we should take them all seriously. However, I would argue that type one should be treated like a medical emergency, given the urgency and life-threatening effects that can occur. This slide depicts the um, the basic cellular mechanism for how an anaphylactic reaction occurs. If a patient is exposed to some drug that causes an immune response, this antigen, which is the drug, would trigger the B cells, and then our B cells would produce IgE antibodies. The IgE antibodies will go mask the mast cells and basophils in our body, and at some point, these mast cells and basophils become sensitized. So on subsequent exposures to that antigen, the antigen will bridge the gap between the antibodies, therefore causing degranulation of our mast cells and basophils, which releases, releases vasoactive mediators, such as histamine, prostaglandins, and leukotrienes. These vasoactive mediators will then go interact with our organ systems to cause the signs and symptoms of anaphylaxis. Anaphylaxis, there's many different manifestations of this, and it involves pretty much every organ system in your body. This would be things like our cutaneous system, neuromuscular system, pulmonary system, cardiovascular system, and gastrointestinal system. I will not go through this exhaustive list today, but I do wanna point out a couple of different hallmarks of anaphylaxis, including urticaria, bronchospasm, and hypotension, which actually makes a whole lot of sense when we think about the release of histamine, which can cause our blood capillaries to become leaky in nature. I think it's important to differentiate at this time between anaphylaxis and an anaphylactoid reaction. And anaphylactoid reactions are also referred to as non-allergic anaphylaxis. The reason for this is, is they present exactly the same as our type 1 anaphylaxis reactions, however they are not mediated through IgE, meaning they're not immunologic in nature. and What's really thought to happen, or the proposed mechanism, is that the drug itself will interact with the mast cells and basophils to cause the release of mediators. This means that a hallmark of anaphylactoid reactions is that we don't need a prior exposure because antibodies are not involved. This is often seen with monoclonal antibodies as well as taxanes. And that brings us to our first assessment question of the day. If you all can take out your cell phones or tablets, you can go to pollev.com slash rx um, or you can visit or text RX to 2233 and respond to this question. The question is immediate type hypersensitivity reactions are mediated through what amino, immunoglobulin? A, IgM, B, IgE, C, IgG, or D, IgA? I'll give everyone a few moments to answer this question. It looks like we were having some answers as B, IGE, which is the correct answer. IGA, we did not discuss today, so that is incorrect. IgM and IgG are actually thought to be related to type 2 hypersensitivity reactions. So now that we have laid the groundwork with some definitions, let's talk about why this even matters. So I started the presentation by saying the, the listed fact here. And as an oncology resident, I was really interested in learning more about these reactions. I know many of you in the audience today or listening might not have an interest in oncology, but I would argue that many of us are attending cold blues or caring for patients that receive these medications, like monoclonal antibodies, which have ever-expanding indications. So as pharmacists and healthcare professionals, it's really necessary for us to know how to prevent and manage hypersensitivity reactions. Nearly all systemic chemotherapy agents can cause a reaction. Given today's time constraints, I chose to focus on these three classes of medications. The first being platinum agents. Examples of this would be cisplatin, carboplatin, and oxaliplatin. The next class of medications I'll talk about are our taxane agents. Examples of this would be docetaxel and paclitaxel. And then lastly are our monoclonal antibodies. There are so many on the market nowadays but a couple of examples would be Rituximab, Trastuzumab, and Cetuximab. Let's start our discussion off with Platinum Agents. So the reported any grade hypersensitivity reaction to Platinum Agents is 12 to 19%, where severe reactions are only listed as 2 to 3% of the time. A hallmark of these platinum-induced hypersensitivity reactions is that they occur after multiple exposures to the medication. In fact, it's listed that the patient needs to be exposed a mean of eight times before having such a reaction, and this is really what explains that the mechanism is more IgE-mediated in nature, because a prior exposure is needed before having the reaction. In terms of when the reaction occurs relative to when the infusion starts, it's quite variable. It can occur during, at the end, or up to three days after the infusion, but most often we're seeing it occur either during or at the end of the infusion. There are no routine pre-medications used for our platinum agents to prevent reactions, but you will see a corticosteroid often added on as an anti-emetic. We will discuss the management of all of these agents later on in, this, in the discussion if a reaction does occur. Next, we will discuss the taxane agents. The any grade incidence of reactions for this class is quite variable, ranging from 5 to 45%, where severe reactions are only occurring about 1 to 4% of the time. The variability in any grade incidence is likely attributed to the fact that we now add on pre medications, which have proven to decrease the risk of reaction. In contrast to our platinum agents, over 95% of the time, patients will react during their first or second infusion, um, which is thought to be why the mechanism here is more non-IgE mediated, meaning it's not immunologic in nature. Over 80% of patients will react within 10 minutes, so it's not as variable as we saw with our platinum agents. Although the mechanism is still controversial most of our literature is pointing to the fact that it's the vehicle or surfactant used for solubilization that's actually causing these reactions and not the drug itself let's talk about that variability now so to begin paclitaxel is a medication that's derived from the bark of yew trees and it actually requires castor oil also known as cremaphore to solubilize it into aqueous solution this cremaphore agent is known to interact with mast cells to release histamine, thus causing that anaphylactoid type of reaction. And this has really been proven by giving patients that are we know are paclitaxel sensitive. If we give them nab-paclitaxel, which is paclitaxel encapsulated with nanoparticles of albumin and it doesn't have cremaphore in it, those patients are able to tolerate the nab-paclitaxel without a reaction. To mitigate the risk of reactions with paclitaxel, we do give dexameth- dexamethasone, diphenhydramine, and fomotidine. Whereas with nab paclitaxel, we do not need to give them any premedications because reactions are so rare. In contrast, docetaxel, docetaxel actually uses a different vehicle. It's called polysorbate 80, which is a surfactant. Um, Polysorbate 80 is also known to interact with mast cells to cause histamine release and thus lead to an anaphylactoid reaction. Um, For pre-medications, it does require dexamethasone. One important thing to note here is that other drugs that we commonly use um, incorporate cremaphore and polysorbate 80 into their formulations, which can lead to cross reactivity. For example, Certain formulations of diazepam and propofol incorporate cremophore, whereas with aprepotent and specific formulations of etoposide, they utilize polysorbate 80. That brings us to our last class of medications we'll discuss today, which are our monoclonal antibodies. I picked this class specifically because the mechanism is a little bit different than our platinum agents and taxanes, where the mechanism isn't completely understood, but there are a few different theories out there. The first being that there, there's this interaction between the antigen and the antibody that is ca- causing cytokine release, which will present clinically a cytokine release syndrome. Next is similar to our platinum agents where the drug itself will actually interact with the mast cells and basophils to cause histamine release. And then lastly is this theory that because we're giving a monoclonal antibody that might be derived from m- mice, that there's these human anti-mouse antibodies that are formed which our bodies react to Um, in terms of any grade it is quite high where we're seeing about 77 percent of patients reacting this is rituximab specifically whereas for severe reactions we're only seeing about one to ten percent most commonly we are seeing patients react during the first infusion which is thought to be why they're non-IgE mediated in nature and patients will often react during 30 to 120 minutes into the infusion. Although premedications will vary quite a bit depending upon which monoclonal antibody you give, I did list here what you would give for rituximab, which would be acetaminophen, diphenhydramine, and an infusion rate ramp-up. I do want to note that it depends what the monoclonal antibody is derived from. For example, the highest risk of a reaction is going to be with our marine monoclonal monoclonal antibodies, such as daratumumab. The next would be with our chimeric monoclonal antibodies, such as rituximab. Next would be with our humanized monoclonal antibodies, such as trastuzumab. And the least amount of risk, because it's most like us, are our fully humanized monoclonal antibodies, such as panatumumab. So that's something to keep in mind when you're looking at pre-medications, is it is gonna vary depending upon what the monoclonal antibody is derived from. That brings us to our second assessment question of the day. Which of the following is a hallmark of platinum agent-induced hypersensitivity reactions? Remember, these are agents like cisplatin and carboplatin. A, occurs a week after starting the infusion. B, it's non-IgE mediated. C, most commonly occurs after multiple exposures to the drug. Or D, 25% list this as severe. I'll give everyone a few moments to answer this question. Looks like there might be a little bit of variability here, so we'll discuss this question. The correct answer here is most commonly occurs after multiple exposures to the drug, or C. Remember, this is our agents that we're not seeing reactions until usually multiple cycles, so 6th, 7th, and 8th exposures to the medication, which is why, why it's thought to be immunologic in nature, or an IgE-mediated reaction. Thus, B is incorrect, in terms of A, this could be a little bit tricky because there is quite a bit of variability when we give platinum agents, but typically we are going to see patients react either during or at the very end of their reaction or at the end of the infusion. And then lastly, D is incorrect. Typically, we only see about 2 to 3% of patients having severe reactions, so it is pretty rare. All right, let's talk about the exciting part. So, prevention and management what we can do as healthcare professionals to prevent and manage such reactions if they do occur. First, it's important prior to starting treatment that we check off each of the following. First, we want to obtain a full history of the patient's allergies, as well as any drug treatments they received or reactions they had in the past. This is really important, for example, if a patient had a severe reaction to a prepotent in the past, which I mentioned is formulated with polysorbate 80, we might think twice about giving them docetaxel. Or if we do give them docetaxel, let's potentially add on more pre-medications or extend the infusion duration. Next, we want to make sure to obtain a thorough baseline assessment, including vital signs, oxygen saturation, as well as cardiovascular status. This is important when evaluating if hypotension is clinically significant. My baseline blood pressure, especially right now, is probably very different than Garrett's, so having that information is important when assessing if a reaction is clinically significant. Lastly is to make sure that your standing orders are signed for the emergency hypersensitivity medications if a reaction was to occur as well as knowing, making sure that nursing knows where those medications are located if the patient starts to react to the medication. And then lastly is to make sure that the pre-medication regimen is optimized prior to starting therapy. And I will outline the most common pre-medications on this slide. So the first being acetaminophen, also known as Tylenol. This is a medication that's used to decrease the risk of both fevers as well as flushing it can help with. So that's often incorporated. We see that with our monoclonal antibodies, such as rituximab. Next, um, often used is steroids. So steroids are thought to decrease the synthesis of both, of both prostaglandins as well as leukotrienes, and thus they can lead to a decreased inflammatory response. Next, most commonly used medication, medications are our antihistamines. These are things like our H1 antagonists, such as diphenhydramine or our non-sedating agents, as well as H2 antagonists, such as famotidine. The thought here is that by binding up the histamine receptors, the histamine that's floating around can't cause systemic effects, such as increasing permeability of our vasculature. And then lastly is montelukast. Although this is not often used globally, This medication is incorporated into our marine monoclonal antibody regimens such as daratumumab. And the thought here is that by antagonizing leukotrienes, this will also decrease the risk of of a reaction. All right, so now that we have talked about the prevention, let's talk about the treatment. And I think that this is best to talk about in terms of a patient case. So here we have a 67-year-old female. She has relapsed ovarian cancer. And two years later, or two years ago, she underwent surgery. She received six cycles of carboplatin and paclitaxel without any sort of complications, and she didn't have any reactions. At this time, she's presenting to the clinic for her second dose of carboplatin. About 60 minutes into the infusion, unfortunately, she starts to have flushing. She's short of breath with oxygen saturations of 90% as well as hypotensive and confused. The nurse immediately stops the infusion, contacts the provider, and now the team is wondering, how do we proceed? So when, when a reaction of this kind occurs, there are a couple different avenues that we must consider. The first being re-challenging. That would be including slowing, slowing the infusion rate and altering the pre-medications by often adding on more medications. Next would be a desensitization protocol, and then lastly would be to ditch the agent altogether. Of course, this decision isn't really black or white. It's something that needs to be decided between both the patient as well as the provider. Um, But first, the provider needs to take into account the severity of the reaction. There are numerous grading scales out there for hypersensitivity reactions. Most commonly, you'll see some sort of adaptation from the CTCAE, Many of you are probably familiar with this. It's the common terminology criteria for adverse events. And it often is used for many different adverse events. This is um, an example that's often used for hypersensitivity reactions to chemotherapy. It's from Brown and colleagues. And I just want to note that it's really a spectrum of symptoms. You'll see things like grade one or mild symptoms are more cutaneous in nature. Whereas for our grade three severe reactions, these are more involving pulmonary and cardiovascular symptoms. So you have to take into consideration them being on a spectrum here. So to best apply this, I wanted to go back to our patient case. So listed above are the symptoms our patient had, um, first being flushing. So this is more cutaneous in nature and would fall under grade one or mild. Next, our patient had shortness of breath, which was a 90% oxygen saturation. This would be considered severe in nature, or grade 3, as well as her symptomatic hypotension, that is grade 3. And then lastly is confusion, also considered grade 3. So based on this information, we can say with confidence that our patient had a severe grade 3 hypersensitivity reaction. Of course, you always wanna take the most severe reaction when defining what your patient has. So let's say, for example, our patient had four grade one symptoms but one grade two, she would have a grade two hypersensitivity reaction. Independent of the grade that your grade of the reaction your patient had, you should make sure that the nurse stops and holds the infusion to return the patient back to baseline and treat the symptoms. So here I included the most common symptoms that occur with hypersensitivity reactions as well as a few of the interventions that can be used. As you can notice, I didn't include dosing or dosing frequency because this will really vary depending upon which institution you're practicing at as well as the comorbidities of the patient. So I think it is best to talk about this as well as in the context of our patient case. As I mentioned, our patient had flushing and she received a couple more doses of antihistamines as listed here, she received a dose of diphenhydramine and fomotidine, And then she had that hypotension, which she received a liter of normal saline for. And she had shortness of breath, so we gave her a dose of nebulized albuterol. With these interventions, the patient quickly resolved her symptoms, and we were able to then decide how to move forward. So now that we have graded the reaction and treated her acute symptoms, the provider has a very major decision to make. He has to decide, he or she has to decide, whether we challenge, undergo desensitization, or discontinue the offending agent. And to really decide on this, we have to take into account what the patient wants to do, but we should also look at the literature. So we will first discuss rechallenging. And I want to preface these slides by saying that although the literature is by no means lacking in this area the quality of the literature is lacking so we're seeing suboptimal study designs there's not a whole lot of randomization or prospective studies out there and the sample sizes are quite small i included two studies so this first one was by wu and colleagues they received they looked at two different platinum agents and two different taxanes and the inclusion criteria were those that had Grade 1 or Grade 2 reactions. And remember, this is either a mild or moderate reaction. In further interventions, they expanded the number of pre-medications and the doses, as well as extended the infusion duration. These interventions were met with great success, with over 90% of patients tolerating this re-challenge. And I want to point out that with the carboplatin, actually 100% of patients tolerated the rechallenge. Similarly, with Huddleston and colleagues, 24 patients were looked at that had a reaction to Paclitaxel and carboplatin. They didn't do as great of a job at grading the severity, but based on the symptoms, they correlated with either a grade one to grade three reaction. The interventions were similar by adding on pre-medications and extending the infusion duration. And there was over a 90% success rate with these interventions as well. To build upon the previous literature, I also wanna just include one more study here by Banerjee and colleagues. This was a single center retrospective chart review. They included a larger sample size with 152 patients from 2006 to 2011. I included the bar graph here to further drive home and illustrate that there is a big difference between a platinum-induced reaction and a taxane-induced reaction where we're seeing the taxane reactions occur after the first and second infusion, whereas we're seeing the platinum agents occur after eight exposures. So that is a big difference I want to drive home. Next, um, this is the conclusions from their study. So as you can see, for the mild to moderate reactions, only seven patients were re-challenged for the platinum agent, but 100% of those patients did tolerate the re-challenge, which is some, similar to what we saw with Wu and colleagues. For the severe reactions, no patients were re-challenged with the carboplatin. However, this was very different than what we were seeing with docetaxel, where over 75% of patients were being re-challenged with this taxane. 75 of the 93 patients that had a mild to moderate reaction were re-challenged, and 91% of those patients tolerated the re challenge which is similar to what we were seeing in the last studies. And then as you can see here, only 5 of the 14 with severe reactions were re-challenged. However, still 80% or 4 of the 5 patients tolerated the re And I do want to note that the one patient that didn't tolerate it, he ended up tolerating subsequent um, infusions with the addition of antihistamine and a steroid and did not have to go under desensitization. So while much of the available literature has promising outcomes, we are still working with very small sample sizes and suboptimal study designs, thus it can be difficult to extrapolate these to all of our patients today. My main takeaways from the literature is that although the effectiveness and safety has been demonstrated, it tends to be lacking for certain medications, which makes me hesitant And I think it also shows the hesitation of both the patient and the provider in re-challenging a medication that a patient had a reaction to. Next, let's talk about desensitization. This was first successfully used for penicillin allergies back in the 1940s. And since that time, the last 20 years or so, we've seen important application for chemotherapy allergies. Historically, it was used for our IgE immediate hypersensitivity reactions like our platinum agents. But subsequently, there's a lot of literature out there for our non-IgE mechanisms such as taxanes and rituximab. So there is a lot of literature to show protocols that have effectiveness. It's important to point out where we should not use desensitization protocols. These are not indicated for Steven Johnson syndrome, severe exfoliative dermatitis, as well as DRESS, which is drug reaction with eosinophilia and systemic syndrome, or symptoms. I also want to point out that there are many variations of protocols available in the literature and there really is no standard. So in simple terms desensitization is a procedure that's designed to induce temporary immune tolerance to offending medications. This is achieved by increasing the dose of medications in a stepwise manner such that the exposure to the medication is always continuous. This slide depicts a commonly used prototype which was first described by Castellan colleagues where three solution bags are compounded. The first is the most dilute and then it becomes more concentrated with the third bag. And the protocol consists of multiple different steps where there is this gradual reintroduction of small, until, small amounts until you reach your full therapeutic dose. I also wanna point out that these protocols all incorporate pre-medications to mitigate the risk of a reaction as well. So Lee and colleagues conducted this single center study that was looking at patients that had a previous reaction to carboplatin, and of the 10 patients they looked at, they underwent 35 desensitization desensitizations total, and they used that similar protocol we just discussed by Castell and colleagues, the three big 12-step protocol. And of those 35 desensitizations, 31 were able to tolerate the the desensitization without reactions, and the four were still able to complete the protocol. They just had mild cutaneous complications. And then here, I just wanted to highlight another example of a desensitization protocol. This is a six-step protocol often used here at Mayo for platinum agents. It's important to note that many of these modified protocols are based upon case reports and case series, um, not full-blown studies. This is an example actually by Gammon and Colleagues, where it was just a case report, and the, the man that received oxaliplatin was able to finish numerous more cycles by undergoing desensitization. That brings us to our last assessment question of the day. So, based on the patient case that we discussed earlier, what is the most appropriate option for future administrations for our patient? A, to pre medicate and re challenge at a normal standard rate, B, discontinue carboplatin and start a second line agent. C, a desensitization protocol, or D, pre-medicate and rechallenge with a slower infusion. I was was expecting some variability with this question because there really isn't a hundred percent correct answer. I would argue it would probably be in the patient's best interest to undergo desensitization. In my opinion, given this is a grade three hypersensitivity reaction to to a platinum agent. Although, I think B, C, and D can all be argued. A would be the only answer I would not want to do for this patient. If we're gonna re-challenge, we should do it all the way by adding pre-medications and extending the infusion duration. Really, at the end of the day, it will depend on both the patient's preference, the provider's comfortability, as well as just patient preference in general and your institution's resources. So here i put together a very general summary of what the interventions should be based upon the grade, grade severity of the reaction, as well as the agent where you had the reaction. In general, for the mild and moderate types of reactions, I would argue that rechallenging is probably the best way to go. Um, whereas we should reserve desensitization for our more serious reactions for patients. And One strategy that I do wanna briefly discuss today to risk stratify patients is the use of skin testing. So skin testing can really be used both prophylactically or as more of a confirmatory use. Um, It's used to identify a subset of patients in whom an IgE-mediated mechanism is present and would therefore benefit from undergoing a desensitization protocol. Here at Mayo, this isn't part of our standard practice right now, just because it is still controversial, and it's a newer idea. Um, But it has, based on the literature I was looking at, there is a lot of support for platinum agents with over 85% positive predictive value with using this for platinum agents, whereas with our taxing agents, there's not much use, and it has not been validated. So one example of this was by Pagani and colleagues. They... Um, put together a prospective study that looked at 101 patients that were receiving Xaliplatin at their institution. And the patients starting at infusion 2 started skin tests. Two patients were positive for intradermal tests. And I want to note that those patients were at cycle 6 and cycle 7. So it does fall in line with what what we're thinking about with platinum agents occurring after multiple exposures. And then of the 99 patients that tested negative, five of those went on to have a reaction, which translates to a 5% false negative rate or a 95% negative predictive value, which based on this, I think that skin testing can be quite reliable in determining which patients are not going to have a reaction, whereas the other two patients that did test positive were able to undergo desensitization protocols up front. And with that that really brings us to the end in summary hypersensitivity reactions are potentially life-threatening complications of chemotherapy agents it's really important that we as pharmacists and healthcare professionals know how to prevent and manage such reactions and for patients that do have a reaction we have other options one one of which is desensitization protocols and this allows us to not move on to the second line therapy for patients, especially for those that might not have a lot of options for their malignancy.
0: If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.